Good morning from me, everybody. If you have your Bible with you, it's Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. It is customary in Beechwood that we would open by reading the text, but we're, we're going to work through a lot of text today. It's verses 26 through 52, so we're going to read it as we go. I just want to give you a couple reminders of where we are in the book, and then I'm going to ask Pastor, or I will ask Brother Wayne to pray over our time in the Word, and then we'll get moving. If the Lord allows, we're going to finish up the Gospel of Mark this month. I've been working through it for a couple of years. Today is Sermon 38 in that, uh, in that series, so it should end up being 41, 42 sermons, so we will finish up the Gospel of Mark together. It, because it's been a minute, let me catch you up on a couple things. First, just some themes. Two big things I want you to take away from the Gospel of Mark when we're all finished. Number one, the Gospel of Mark is ultimately a... Uh, one long trip to the cross. We, we are getting now to the end of the book where the, the cross, the, resur- the, the crucifixion, the resurrection are going to happen. But if you plot the stories in the Gospel of Mark on a map, it won't be a straight line, but you'll be, you'll be finding that Jesus was always having his face towards his ultimate work, the fulcrum of history, his work on the cross. And we're finally getting there in the narrative in the next few weeks. Two, the... The, the second big theme of the Gospel of Mark is a question for you. The question is, who is this Jesus? And then Mark does an incredible job over these chapters of revealing piece by piece that this Jesus is authoritative over everything. He dominates demons and he dominates the law and the Pharisees. He can tell storms to be quiet. He can tell dead girls to rise. He has authority over everything. And after he, he exposes that to you, he shows you, this is Jesus, the, the Messiah, God in the flesh. It's in a demand on you. What are you going to do with that? Yeah. Are you going to have him as your mascot? Are you going to have him as, your, as, as just an add-on? Or are you going to bow to him and his total authority over everything? Those are your two big themes in Mark. The last time we were together in the Gospel of Mark, here's where we are in the narrative, in the story. Jesus and his disciples just finished the communion, the Lord's Supper in the upper room. They were practicing Passover and as the old Passover was, the celebration of God delivering his people from Egypt, Jesus inaugurated something new. We get to celebrate after the sermon even, Jesus taking us and delivering us out of sin, not just bondage in Egypt. And then at the end of that dinner, we saw Judas get up and leave. Judas has gone to betray the Savior. So that's what happened last time we were together. So like last time in the Gospel of Mark, that's what happened. Now we're going to ask Brother Wayne to pray. We're going to get through all these verses today and see what the Lord would tell us. Brother Wayne, if you would open us. Father, we thank you again for your goodness and your mercies. We thank you for this day. Thank you for this time of worship. Amen. I pray that you'd be with Brother Corey today. I pray that you would use him and use your word to transform us, to to renew our minds this morning. Amen. Amen. Lord, we need to... Amen. We need it. We need to be equipped, but Lord, we need we need an unction. We need some kind of uh, passion to go out and witness to others, Lord. Let that be, do that today for us, Lord. Let us get outside of ourselves and stop being placeholders. Yeah. But let us go out and pro- propagate the gospel. And as we say every week to, to go into all the world, Lord, let us do that at least in our world. Amen. Let us in our circles, in our families. Amen. Let us just stop being just, uh, uh, 
nominal Christians, God, that yeah. let us be witnesses for you. Let, let this message today do that for us. Amen. Give us a passion to go out into the world. I thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. It's a good word. Let's get to it. It's Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, starting in verse 26. We'll read the first two verses. And when they, that's Jesus and the eleven disciples that were left, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Let's pause there for just a second. So the Passover meal has closed. They've left the upper room. It's safe to assume they were going up to the Mount of Olives to stay for the night. It's a holiday weekend. It's a holiday week in, in Jerusalem, so it's packed. A lot of people are staying outside. And here's a, a skill it's time to pick up if you're a careful Bible reader. One of the things you will pick up as a theme in Bible reading, especially in the Gospels, when the characters elevate, the story escalates. When you see characters going to a high place, that should be a trigger in your mind. I need to start paying attention. Something big is happening here. It happened through all of Jesus' ministry. He has the Sermon on the Mount. He goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration. I could take you all the way back through Bible for some more examples. We know eventually he's going to end on the Mount of Calvary. And so as we are reading here, as careful Bible readers, man, they're going up to a Mount of Olives. I better pay attention. Something big is about to happen. So... As the characters elevate, the story escalates, and Jesus' words escalate. They intensify. When he was back in the room in the, for, the, uh, for the Last Supper, he said, One of you is going to betray, betray me. Now he says to the whole group, You're all going to fall away. And he does it by quoting Zechariah 13.7. When he says there, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, he's quoting an old prophecy that's about to become true that... God, Yahweh, is saying, I will strike the shepherd. God is doing the, inflict, the affliction. I will strike the shepherd, and you, the followers, will all scatter. That was centuries before, and now we're about to see it take place. So hold those two thoughts in your head. Jesus has made the prophecy, the, the allegation, you're all going to fall away, and the shepherd will be struck. But God is doing the striking. That is what Zechariah is prophesying. God does the striking. Verse 28, quickly. But after, after the shepherd is struck, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So he says, all of you will fall away. The sheep are going to, stat, are, are going to, uh, are going to scatter, but I will stand firm. You can always count on me. I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to leave you without guidance. Once I've been struck, I'm coming back. I'll meet you where you are. And so that's the big heavy load that Jesus just dropped on these guys. You're all going to scatter. I'm going to be afflicted. God's doing the afflicting. I'll meet you after. Let's see how the disciples respond to that heavy message. Verse 29, Peter said to him, isn't it always Peter? He's always got something to say. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to Peter, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. First, I feel like Peter's speaking up to say that. It's a little awkward. Like, you got to think about the minor, the minor uh, characters back there. I feel like Bartholomew's back there going, hey man, like, what do you mean? What do you, like, you, you, why, why are you casting aspersions at me? Like, they're all going to fall away, but not me. I won't do it. I also sort of identify with Peter here. I wouldn't have said it out loud, but something in me would have said, no, not me. I won't, I won't fall away. 
And Jesus' response to Peter's bravado, to my bravado, is, you're not only going to deny me, you're going to pretend you never met me. That's how dangerous your self-reliance is. Verse 31, Peter has not had enough yet. So Peter says in verse 31, uh, but but Peter said emphatically, if I must die, I will not deny you. And then all of the followers of Peter, they all said the same. Yeah, we'll never do it. We're never going to deny you. You say we're all going to fall away. It'll never happen. I notice here from Peter, he sure does love Jesus, but he doesn't know himself at all. He doesn't know his own weakness. He's got great affection for the Savior, but he doesn't know how weak he is. The entire group joins in with Peter and pledging to Jesus, we won't abandon you, we won't deny you. Which leads in then to, let's, let's see how they perform in the next scene. There's a scene change here. It's starting in verse 32. What we're about to read is one of the seminal passages in all of the Bible. And we're going to walk through it here, line by line, verse 32. And they, Jesus and the eleven, went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. This is another quick word for you careful Bible readers. We know Gethsemane is a garden. Two things happened there. It was, it was at least a place where grapes were gathered. There was a crushing to make wine, but it was also just a, a private garden to enjoy. The careful Bible reader, Bible reader knows when we go to a garden, something big's happening. Doug just preached through that. Pastor Doug just preached through that in Revelation. We start in the Garden of Eden, but the ending pages of the Bible is a renewed garden city. I could just walk you through a ton. When we go up to high places with garden-like features, we do things like Noah getting the new covenant. We get the Ten Commandments. Big stuff happens in high places and in gardens. And now we're getting both. It's a high place and a garden. So you should know, pay attention. Something very big is about to happen. Verse 33. And Jesus took with Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed. And troubled. And Jesus said to Peter, James, and John, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Let's pause there for a second to notice a couple things. One, notice the escalating intimacy. So he had all 11, but he leaves eight and takes the ones he's most close to, just like he did during the transfiguration up on that mountain where Moses and Elijah really established and showed Peter, James, and John who Jesus was. So Jesus leaves the eight and takes the three, but then he takes the three, Peter, James, and John, and he says, even you, even you stay here. I'm going to a place of ultimate, ultimate intimacy, just Jesus and the Father, just God the Son and God the Father doing business in this high garden place. And notice then Jesus' emotions and his words. He's greatly distressed. He's troubled. His soul is sorrowful. I'm going to ask you to use your imagination and get there in your own mind the best you can. We can't. He's the God-man. But I, I have a very active imagination as I read. And I think of this, this God-man. He was one with the Father before all ages. We read every week. He's got to know the gravity of this moment. It's not just three years of earthly ministry. It's the millennia of anticipation of the moment we're coming to. There was a battle launched on us by our enemy in the garden of even millennia before this. And tonight, the decisive counterattack against our enemy will be struck. And it will be costly. 
and all of that weight of a millennia-long cosmic battle for your soul is on the shoulders of our Jesus in a dark, quiet mountain garden as he goes to pray. And he prays this in verse 35. And going a little farther, Jesus fell on the ground and prayed, If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The transparency of this prayer, the transparency of these two verses is striking. This is not the stuff you build religions on. Your hero of the story doesn't have weak moments where he is asking that the seminal thing, the thing he always came to do, he is asking the Father, take it from me. I don't want it. I know this, none of my childhood heroes had that moment in their stories. There were no comic books or cartoons that told me the hero would have a weak moment. There are no John Wayne, moment, John Wayne movies where he is wondering if he can have the power or the strength to do it. All of our heroes that we tell myths about, they are always steel-spined and rock-ribbed going to do what they're supposed to. But Jesus is experiencing something here that has knocked him to the ground. Our Jesus thus far in the story stood before Pharisees and Sadducees, stood before demons and storms, and he hasn't blinked once. And even after this, he's not going to blink much more. He's going to stand before Pilate. He's going to stand before the high priest. He will stand before the cross itself. And there's so much strength about how he takes it. But in this moment, he's so weak. And what took him, that should require of us, what took him there? Well, surely... Surely he despises the shame that's coming, the abuse, the false accusations, the beating, the scourging, the humiliation. Surely he despises the shame that's coming. But a lot of people have taken that. I can tell you countless stories from the Fox's Book of Martyrs. I can tell you all kinds of stories through history of people who took their death, their scourging, their torture. We all, well, a lot of us grew up on Braveheart. Like there's, there's a scene at the end of there, he's being killed for his cause gruesomely. And he is doing it with strength. So what's different here? He's facing those physical things that a lot of people have faced, and they face them with strength. It should tell us this. He must be facing something that we don't quite get. He must be facing something no one else has for him to react this way. And he certainly is. He's facing the wrath of God on sin. No other martyr has done that. No one who ever died for their cause was staring at the heavy wrath of God. When he says, remove this cup from me, that's a picture throughout the Old Testament of God's wrath. I'll give you just a couple examples, and we'll talk about it more later. In Isaiah 51, 17, God says to his people, Wake yourself, wake yourself up, stand up, Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup, of staggering. God's wrath is staggering. Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup. It's foaming with wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it all on all the wicked of the earth. They shall drain it down to the dregs. This is the cup he's beginning to taste, and it's like nothing else anyone's ever faced. And it is crushing him in this place where grapes are bruised and crushed to make wine. Our Savior is being bruised for our sins, crushed 
for our transgressions, he's being crushed in this wine press. The wrath of God on every sin that's ever wrecked your life, the sins that you've committed to wreck others, every offense to God, the wrath of that is coming down on him and it is heavy. It's where the sorrow comes from. And in that sorrow, he says, Abba, Father. I think maybe even thinking back to that Psalm 34, Jesus knew with scriptures that our Father is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit and he's asking the Father, I'm, I am brokenhearted. I'm crushed in spirit. Will you take this from me? And then we get those very famous words. We didn't grow up with it this way. Our text today says, not what I will, but what you will. And you probably remember it as, thy will be done. So while he asks for the cup to pass, this powerful Jesus who spoke everything to, into existence in eternity past humbly submits to the Father and wages war on our sin in the garden. So that's what Jesus is doing. Starting to taste the cup of the wrath so we don't have to. Let's check in on his three apostles. Verse 37. And Jesus came and found Peter, James, and John sleeping. And Jesus said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus had emotions just like us. I imagine he's hurt and frustrated that his, his friends, his followers just can't stay up with him to pray. Another way to say what he's, he says here about the spirit is willing, but his flesh is weak. He is giving them the message for what's coming, what's happening next. You're going to need much more nourishment for your spirit than your body. So nourish your spirit now with prayers. Stay up. Verse 39, and again, Jesus went away and prayed, saying the same words. So he is back in the garden, waging war on our sin, feeling the wrath of God. Verse 40, and again, Jesus came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. This is round two, and Mark recording this, it seems like they don't even have anything to say for themselves. They don't, he doesn't even record a conversation. Jesus goes again a third time. Surely this can't happen again, verse 41, as Jesus goes back to pray. And Jesus came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour's come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I just want to make a quick point here about the authenticity that just bubbles up through this passage. The same way that you don't, you don't start a religion based on the story of your hero having a moment of weakness, you definitely don't start your, your religion on these disciples. They look terrible here. They are likely later in churches as the gospel of Mark is read, and they're just there guilty. Yeah, we slept on him while he was doing war in Gethsemane. Yes, we slept on him. These are not the people that you found your religions on, and there should be, I think, for you some apologetic point of authenticity. We have a very real story here because you don't make yourself look this bad as you're doing something fake. But this leads us right into the moment of Jesus, excuse me, Judas bringing the soldiers to arrest Jesus. Prayer time is over. Here we go in verse 43. And immediately, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with Judas, a crowd with swords and clubs 
from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer, Judas, had given the crowd a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. I imagine as the disciples were hearing from Jesus and he says, Are you you still sleeping? Are you still taking your rest? They're feeling the disappointment in themselves, but off in the distance as the, that crowd starts to come and swords are clanking together and the, the, the steps in that quiet garden as the silence gets broken, that disappointment melts into dread. They know a threat is coming. And here comes Judas and all of his group to betray Jesus. We, all, we know from history that the religious leaders who Jesus had just humiliated days before in the temple, they had their own squad, their own security. It's likely who Judas has coming to get him. Verse 45, And when Judas came, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi! And Judas kissed Jesus, and this crowd laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those, that's one of the disciples who stood by, drew his sword and struck one of the servants of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, the crowd that came to arrest him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And then I think verse 50 is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. And they, that is all the disciples, his followers, and they all left him and fled. This story has more details in other Gospels. The Matthew account and the Luke account give you a lot more details. You're probably quite familiar with the story. Judas comes to kiss Jesus, and in my imagination, it gets rowdy quickly. So here I'm saying my imagination, I can't prove this, that There are the followers of Jesus that take flight. They run. They want to get out of there. There are some that fight. And we learn from the Gospel of Matthew that it's Peter there in the story that takes out his sword and swings at a guy named Malchus and cuts off his ear. I've always made the assumption that if he cut off his ear, he was aiming for something else and missed. Peter was murderous. He was ready to defend Jesus. And then we learn from another Gospel, Jesus takes that ear and heals Malchus. I think it's that moment that stops the ruckus, it stops the chaos, so that Jesus can say to them, have you come out against me as a robber? It's not a great translation. It should be more rebel, more insurrectionist. He says to them from the beginning, you come out to me as an insurrectionist, as a, as a rebel. I was just in the temple with you people. You knew, you knew what I was saying from the start. You're obviously coming with false pretenses. If I was, I mean, this is Jesus, I think, who could say, I had 5,000 guys on a hillside. If I wanted to rebel, I would have rebelled. I had a lot of folks. You know I'm not rebelling against you. He's almost previewing the sham process that's about to take place. It is false accusations in a, a kangaroo court that tries him. Everything that's about to happen to him is wrong. And from the beginning, I think he just previews it. Like You, you even know what you're coming to get me for is false. But then... A sentence here that I could do an entire sermon on. He finishes, Jesus finishes there saying, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. There's a lot there. Certainly, I think Jesus is referring to that Zechariah 13 passage I mentioned earlier, where he says, if you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter, because that just happened. The shepherd has been struck, and the sheep did scatter. But man, all the stories of redemption are about to be fulfilled. 
the promise in the garden that there was one coming to crush the head of the serpent through God saying to Abraham, I'm going to bring one through your line that's going to make all things right to to God reaffirming that process, that promise in Noah and in David and throughout time, all of the promises, things being made right, all of them are about to be fulfilled in the work of Christ on the cross. And then I, I said to one of the saddest verses of the Bible, verse 50, they all left him abandoned. I, I, want, you, I want you to feel the, 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 uh, how lonely that has to be. He's left there with nobody except the people who arrested him and the man who betrayed him. I want you to hear that Jesus has experienced every abandonment you have. We'll talk about it a little bit more later. He is not, he's not unfamiliar with every, every abandonment you've ever had, every loneliness you've ever had. Then finally, two verses here. They're a hidden gem, verses 51 and 52. Like I, I have been in church for 36 years, soon to be 37 years. I don't think I've ever read these verses until I started studying for this sermon. They are weird and also quite profound. So Jesus has been arrested here. Here's just two quick verses from Mark. And a young man followed Jesus with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, so he wasn't wearing much. And they, the crowds from, from the high priest, Judas's group, they seized this young man. But this young man, he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So in between Gethsemane, one of the seminal parts of the Bible, and Jesus' arrest, and right before his trial, we get two weird verses about a guy streaking through the, the garden. Why, why would we do that? Why would there be two verses like that? Well, as I studied it, there are scholars that think, but I can't prove it, but this is where I land, this is Mark's cryptic allusion to himself. He was saying, yeah, I wasn't one of the twelve, but I was there. I was a follower. I was lurking in the, in the distance. And when that crowd came to arrest him and maybe the rest of us, I'm just like the twelve. I freaked out. I was so freaked out, I, I ran away naked. Maybe literally naked, but I think what he's trying to tell you is, I ran away in shame. All of us abandoned him. No one's hands are clean on this. But that's, that's one side. It's Mark including himself in the story. But I think it's another significant image for those of us that are really familiar with the Bible's core stories. He's trying to get you to think of something. When was the last time we had a shameful naked man in a garden trying to hide? Well, that's, that's chapter 3. We have Adam, our first father from whom we inherited our sin nature, he is there in the garden, hiding from God, naked in the garden. And as he is one image, our sin, we get to see in this garden, look over at Jesus. Now, face towards the cross in strength and power, going to conquer our greatest enemies. Seeing our contrast as Adam in the garden versus Jesus in this garden. That's the text for today. What I have for you is, I think it's four points, and then like an, uh, let's call it an addendum at the end. Four points for you. I added this first one this morning, so forgive me if I mess up some of these words. Number one, we see here embarrassingly sleepy disciples. Number one, embarrassingly sleepy disciples. When I work through any text that has characters in it, that's what I like to do. I like to analyze the characters in the text. And so we did see the disciples here, and they were embarrassing. They just couldn't stay awake for a really important time. That's a challenge I just want to give you this morning. Are you a sleepy disciple? 
we have some preachers I've, I've noticed over the years, they preach that idea of sleepy disciples, something of, of a fear motivator. Like, you don't know the time we're in. We're at the end of the days. You need to wake up. I don't want to do that to you. I don't want to motivate you with fear. But I'm saying this. If you will be awake to what the Lord is doing, he's doing incredible things everywhere. Yeah. It's just likely the case that the world has made you sleepy. That worldliness and secularism and how we fill our feeds and our minds with ungodly things, we're just asleep to the things of God. And if you would wake up to the things of God, you're going to see His church is growing around the world. You're going to see in your own household there's discipleship to have. You're going to see in this place there's work to do in your own neighborhood. So let me just very quickly, first point today, don't be an embarrassingly sleepy disciple. Wake up to the things the Lord is already doing right now and participate in those. Then number two, and number two and three are very deeply connected. So number one, embarrassingly sleepy disciples. Number two, we have an astonishingly troubled Jesus. I already built it out for you some that Jesus' reaction in the garden is so different than most of our heroes, and we, we see why. He was experiencing something that if you're in Christ today, you'll never experience. You'll never experience the wrath of God. Praise the Lord. And you might even say, yeah, okay, so he was, he was experiencing something none of us will, and he seems to be taking it in with some weakness in the garden, but didn't he know it was coming? Isn't he, as we say in the creed, isn't he one with the Father before all ages, very God of very God? Didn't he know what was coming? Sure. But knowing something and experience it, experiencing it are very, very different things. I remember when Pastor Doug and I went out to Phoenix about five or six years ago for the Southern Baptist Convention. I had people tell me who have been out west, like, you're not, you cannot imagine the heat of the desert in June. You're just not going to be able to, you can't imagine it. It's like, I can probably imagine it. I know what heat's like. And then I remember getting out of the, getting out of the airport and going, oh, this is a different, this is, I'm, I am baking in an oven. Like, this is a very different heat. Yes, Jesus knew it was coming. But to actually take the cup and start to experience it, to experience the wrath of God on sin, that's a very different thing. One guy, I, one scholar I, I appreciate said it this way. I want, I want to immediately put an amendment on it at the end because I don't like the way he finishes it. But here is what he said about this moment of Jesus being sorrowful, this astonishingly sorrowful Jesus. Why was it so powerful? Here's what he said. The dreadful sorrow and anxiety of the Garden of Gethsemane was not Jesus shrinking from physical suffering. Thousands of people have done that well. It was rather that when Jesus sought the Father for the first time, Jesus saw only hell before him. I want to take the saw hell before him and, and try to tighten that up. For all of Jesus' physical life and for all of time, when Jesus turned to the Father, heaven smiled on him. He was always welcome in. There was perfect unity. Can you imagine that kind of relationship? Perfect unity for all of time with the Father. And for the first time in all of eternity, when Jesus turned to heaven, he didn't just get nothing. It's not that it was a lack of the smile and he heard nothing at all. When he turned to heaven, he saw wrath. The wrath of God for the first time. Instead of getting a smile, he got the cup. Of course, that's going to lead to an astonishingly sorrowful Jesus. What I want you to hear from that one is let's, in a moment when we, when we sing, let's worship a Jesus who will do that for us. 
that because he turned to heaven and saw wrath, there will never be a time that you turn to heaven and get anything from a father who wants to hear from you. Because of what Jesus did, you will never look to heaven and get silence or wrath. You have a sympathetic high priest, the writer of Hebrews says, there is no trouble you have right now or will have or have had that he does not know. He has been crushed under the worst of trials. He did it for us so that we might be reconciled, and it cannot be revoked, an irreconcilable, unrevocable connection to our Father for all time. That's what an astonishingly sorrowful Jesus accomplished. Which leads us to three. We have our embarrassingly sleepy disciples. We have an astonishingly sorrowful Jesus. And we have an uncomfortably intense wrath. At least in the Western world, when we talk about the wrath of God being poured out on sin, it makes a lot of folks uncomfortable. I hope you know that's just us. The, the, Western, the Eastern religions, the Middle East, this is not hard for them. They see wrath as super normal. It's us that live really cushy lives that think wrath is something we should, uh, we should balk against. But ultimately, the, the Western world's hatred of wrath, it's incoherent. We're all wrathful. The more you love something the more capable you are of feeling wrath towards something that would hurt the object of your love. We have in your mind right now, there are things in the world, there are things that happen to you, there are people who have done it, that you know if they, if, if they don't repent and follow Jesus, they deserve wrath for what they've done. You can look at evil in the world right now and know, yes, wrath is good. God's judgment on them is good. We just tend not to think that about ourselves. Wrath is a... We, we learned through Revelation. There will come a time in eternity. We're going to worship God for His wrath on sin because it's justice. And we all long for justice. So one, it's an uncomfortably intense wrath in this culture, but we got to know wrath is a good thing. We want justice on sin. The wrath, number two, wrath is a, a good concept for us to embrace because wrath in part tells you your worth in the kingdom of God. A God that paid nothing for you doesn't, doesn't, doesn't love you like this God does. You are very costly. For you to be involved in, included in the kingdom of God, it required Jesus absorbing the wrath of God on your behalf. That's what it means to be in the family of God. If you're uncomfortable with wrath today, recognize it is, it is Jesus absorbing that wrath that tells me how much I'm worth. I'm in the kingdom and it cost Jesus his life. It cost Jesus in the garden immense sorrow to win me in. Oh, it's uncomfortably intense wrath, but it's a beautiful one when you think about it more deeply. I read maybe too much C.S. Lewis, but he has a series of letters he published to people who corresponded with him. And one of them was a guy named Malcolm. He was in the British countryside. And Malcolm says to Lewis, I can't stand the idea of God's wrath. The only way I've been able to think about it and accept it is that God's wrath is like a live wire, a live electrical wire. The, the circuit's not closed, and it's just out there, and it, it hits who it hits. It's kind of random. I, I can't handle the idea of God purpose, purposely engaging in wrath on others. Lewis wrote back to him, A live electrical wire cannot forgive. Anger can forgive. Wrath can forgive. You don't want a random wrath in the world. You want a purposeful, our hearts long for, a purposeful wrath on sin and sinners. And we then feel the incredible 
gift it is that instead of the wrath on me, Jesus took it for me. So we have our, our embarrassingly sleepy disciples, but then we have the sorrowful Jesus in, in experiencing this intense wrath on our behalf, and we can worship Him for that today. In just a few moments, we're going to gather around the table. Let that fill your heart as we get around the table. And then probably finally, let me check the clock here, number four here, a uniquely third way regarding suffering. A uniquely third way regarding suffering. One of my themes over the years is I want to prepare us for suffering. I just think it, I don't just think, it's inevitable in life. If you're not suffering right now, you will soon, or you just stopped suffering something. We're, life tends to be that way. We go through cycles of suffering. Jesus here in the garden, and what he's going to show us over the next few weeks, he shows us how to suffer well. One of the, this is also C.S. Lewis, one of the good definitions of sufferings I've heard over the years, Lewis said, suffering is the gap between your desires and your circumstances. For what you want to be in your actual life, suffering is the gap between those two things. And he commented that the, two, the religions of the world have tried to meet suffering in two ways. That in the Eastern world, Buddhism, Sikhism, a, a lot of the, the Eastern religions, their strategy is change your desires to match your circumstances. So they say if your circumstances are bad, change what you want. Just want less. Get your mind to match what you have and just be happy. Don't worry about your circumstances. You can't really change them. That's where the cynics come from. So don't change your circumstances. Change your desires. The West, where we grew up, I mean, I feel this one in my soul because I grew up this way, was change your circumstances to match your desires. Get up, work hard, get yourself up by your bootstraps, and start getting your desires, to, your circumstances to match your desire. Jesus offers a whole third way to answer suffering. He doesn't try to change his circumstances. He asks the Father, let this cut pass from me, but he doesn't raise an army to change the circumstance he's about to go through. He also doesn't change his desires. He is very transparent here, saying, I don't want this. I don't want what's coming. But then in not changing his circumstances and not changing his desires and feeling the tension in there, he just redirects his desires towards God and says, your will be done. My wisdom on circumstances and my, wisdoms on my, my wisdom on my desires, they're nothing compared to what you know and what you're doing. So I will submit humbly to the Father and say, Thy will be done on my circumstances. Thy will be done on my desires because I know that you have the best heart for me. It's a unique way regarding your suffering that you can rest in a good God that's brought you through so much already that He is not going to leave you now. He will finish the work that He began. So let's not be these embarrassingly sleepy disciples. Let's wake up to the things of God. Let's gaze at our astonishingly sorrowful Savior as He experiences uncomfortably intense wrath and praise Him for it today and recognize you don't have to suffer like the world does. Jesus gives us a good model here. And I got two minutes here to say this last part I wanted to say. It's one of my favorite Tim Keller syllogisms about the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane, trying to compare those two. He says... In the Garden of Eden, God said to, in some ways, all of us, but says to Adam, Obey me about the tree and you will live. So obey me about the tree of knowledge and good and evil. and Obey me about the tree of life. If you obey me about the tree, you will live. 
In the Garden of Gethsemane, God says to Jesus, Obey me about the tree of Calvary, and you will die. We couldn't obey about the tree, and we failed. Jesus was able to succeed in his obedience with the tree, and now we get to switch. He took on our curse, the wrath of God, and we take on his life that he won for us. Let's worship, worship him for that today as the band comes up. Let me pray for us as the band comes up.